Father, you are so good to us in giving us your word so that we might know you better and so that we might say and sing back to you how good you are. Thank you for these psalms. Thank you for this psalm. We pray this morning that you would open our ears and our eyes to see and hear and to respond in hearts and lives of praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, praise the Lord, the psalmist says, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. How do you know if someone loves you? What would you say? Well, of course, there are an infinite number of ways of demonstrating love. There are flowers and gifts and loving words and hugs and time and attention and acts of service, all positive ways of demonstrating love. But it's often said the thing about love is that it's easy to love people who are lovable. It's easy to do any of those different ways of expressing love with someone who looks like maybe they might kind of love you back in some way. Somebody who has also loved you in those ways. It is easy to love the lovable. But whether you're at work or at school or at home or in a relationship, or whatever it is, it's far less easy to love the unlovable and the unlovely, the awkward, the rude, the violent, the cancelable. But verse 1, again, in our psalm, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. Well, what kind of love then are we talking about? This psalm closes off this fourth the, the, the fourth book in the Psalms has five books, each with slightly different themes. We've worked through this, actually, this fourth book of Psalms over the last couple of years in the summers. And this now closes off by highlighting how extraordinary God's love is. And, and the way that this psalm does, highlights God's love is by showing how absolutely unlovely the objects of his love are. It's sometimes said that loyalty begins at the point of disagreement. You know, you could say you don't get to see real love till actually it's tested by unloveliness, by sin, by undeservingness of the kind that we see in God's people, of the kind that we see in ourselves. So the Psalms, of course, are Israel's Songbook, songs to sing about God, back to God, brought together around the time of the end of the exile when first the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom of Judah had been taken to, into exile in Babylon. And right at the end of our psalm, verse 47, we heard the psalmist pray. At the end of the psalm, you see that next page, save us, O Lord our God, gather us from the nations. That is the scene for this psalm. That's where we are. And so the question in the background is, for God's people is, has God finally given up? Has he given up on his wayward, rebellious people who, despite him showing his love to them over and over and over again, they have in, in countless ways ignored that love and rebelled against the God who loves them? So what is God going to do? Is his love going to endure? That is the question. 
What kind of love does God have for his people? Is it one that in the end will give up in the face of rejection and rebellion and not returning the love that they've been shown? The psalmist says back in verse 3 as he begins, Remember me. When you show favour to your people, when you save them, remember me. But the question is, will he? Will God show favour to his people? Is that the kind of God he is? Well, what we're going to see is it turns out when he says his love endures forever, he really means it. And we get to see exactly how in what follows as he shows quite how undeserved that love is. And what we're going to see is that this is not just about the Israelites all those years ago, it's also about us. So on the back of the notice sheet, you can see uh, the headings where we're going first of all we need to see we have sinned like they did the psalmist says let me tell you how much how much God loves us how much does God love us he says well it begins by telling you we have sinned even as our fathers did can you see that in verse 6 even as our ancestors did from then on all the way down to verse 46 we get 41 verses or thereabouts it's not actually about the sin of the psalmist. He, go, he talks the whole way through about the sin of his ancestors, their ancestors. And this is not just some you know, politician apologising for the sins of a previous generation precisely because such apology is cheap when it's not your fault. You know, it's easy to do, isn't it? And make grand statements about things that other people did and apologise for them. No, actually, this is the opposite. This is more than that. This is saying those sins that were committed before, their sins are our sins too. That's what he's saying. He's saying we are like them. We have done what they did. Our hearts are the same. This is related to what Christians sometimes call original sin. The idea that the sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden is our sin sin and not just his sin but his guilt is our guilt and today in the 21st century you know we we bristle against that in our culture don't we we think oh that can't be right that that's not fair you know we should have a chance to prove ourselves not be assumed guilty before we start even from birth but the author gk cheston had a good line on this he wrote that original sin is actually the one demonstrably demonstrably provable Christian doctrine. You see, so much of what Christians believe is depending on what others saw 2,000 years ago, which is fine, and and we can rely on that. That's okay. You know, we can rely on the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' miracles and his resurrection. But it was 2,000 years ago. That's the point. But to prove the idea of original sin, what do you need to do? Well, you just need to open your eyes and look around you. It's there for all all of us to see the mess of the world around us, the mess of our own hearts and our own lives, and our seeming inability to do anything other than stuff it up, whatever context we're talking about. And I know you'll be able to think of many examples. You know, in in, in 2022, Perhaps it, it, it ought to be easier than it's been for a long time, actually, when you think about it, to believe that left to ourselves, human beings are rotten on the inside. 
That is why the world is, is, is in such a mess. So the psalmist is saying their sin is our sin. Now this picture on the screen, if you can see it, is a painting by Rembrandt. It's called The Raising of the Cross. But do you know what is distinctive about this painting? What is distinctive is, um, is that the figure in blue, which is then sort of magnified on the right, at the foot of the cross, gazing on Jesus as he's lifted up, that's actually a self-portrait of Rembrandt. And so what he's done is he's painted himself into the picture at the foot of the cross. So what is he saying? He's saying, by painting it like that, he's saying, you know what, if I'd been there, I too would have done the same thing. Their sin is my sin. That's what he's saying by painting it like that. And that's true at the cross and there's that sense in which we know that if we had been alive 2,000 years ago, we would have treated God himself on earth as a man in the way that they did then. Because that is what human beings are like. That is what we are like. And so that's what he's saying. It's true for them then. For the psalmist writing, it's true for us now, and to demonstrate that further, what he then does is a rundown of all the different kinds of sin that were there in Israel's past. And he's saying, you know, that's what was in their hearts then, it's in his heart now as he writes. And then we'll see too, it's also in our hearts now. And the story that he tells is the story of the Exodus. And actually, we're going to turn to Exodus in our morning services this term. We finished Genesis over a, a, a couple of years we're going to start with Exodus, but we get a kind of condensed history of it. So Psalm 106 is a good way into this. So he tells the story. So let's look very briefly through what he says. You can see that the headlines, just to each of them very, very briefly on the, um, on the handouts. But he talks about their unbelief, verses 7 to 12. So verse 7, when our ancestors were in Egypt, they gave no thought to your miracles. They did not remember your many kindnesses, and they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. So this is after the plagues. But before God has actually taken them out of Egypt. And what happens, as we'll see later in the term, is at that point their faith fails. They've seen God's power over his enemies, you know, the ten plagues, they're, you know, relatively well known, all these different things that happen, and the gnats and the frogs and the darkness. And you think, you know, God is, God's power is amazing. And then finally he's, he's um, done this, this extraordinary, horrible plague on the firstborn, and, and, and it's a massive act of judgment. Look at God's power. But now they stand by the Red Sea and they look out over this sea and they think, we can't go through that. It's ridiculous. What are we going to do now? They're behind us. They're going to catch up with us and we're trapped. And they don't believe God has the power to rescue them. And they say, God's brought us here to die. That's been the whole point of everything he's done is to bring us here to perish. That is what the psalmist here calls unbelief. But we know we can be exactly the same, don't we? A few weeks ago we heard in, in Romans chapter 8, that great verse, verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And yet what do we do still? We kind of know that, but what do we do? We, we hedge our bets with God. You know, I can't go all in with him, we think. You know, I, I need to keep a foot in the world's 
camp. I won't let go of everything. I still need my safety net. I, I, I really care about what others think of me. You know, I don't want them to think I'm weird. I, I, I need my creature comforts. And on it goes. You see, we don't trust God to care for us, to provide for us. I think, no, it, somehow I've got to hold on to it myself. Well, the psalmist says that is unbelief. It was their sin. It, was, it is ours. Then verses 13 to 15, discontent. In the desert they gave in to their craving. So remember now they've been rescued out of slavery and then they've gone through the Red Sea. Turns out there was a way through the Red Sea because God is God and he can divide it in half and through they go before the sea comes crashing down on the Egyptians behind them. But now, now, now they're out in the desert where there isn't any food, of course. And so, well, there's more grumbling and more moaning about, you know, what on earth does God think he's doing, bringing us here where there's no food to eat? So what does God do? He provides food for them. Day after day, what happens? Manna and quail are provided from, for, for, from them. Bread and, um, and, 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 and meat to eat. And it comes from heaven and then there's water from the rock. It is totally miraculous. So the place where there should be no food, there is food provided for them by their heavenly Father. And if you know the story, even then when they're provided with that food, first of all they moan because there isn't any food, then they moan because the food's always the same. They want a varied menu. And they think, oh, no, you know, at least, at least back in Egypt we had a varied diet. We'd be better off back there, that's what they say. They forget, of course, back in Egypt they were slaves. They had a miserable life. That's what they'd been rescued from. What do you want to go back there for? But they just focus on the discomfort here and now. That is all they can see and all they can feel. And we say, you know, I mean, I, I know in principle that the Christian life is not going to be easy. But I do just wish it could be a little bit more comfortable. You know, my, my non-Christian friends, they live this apparently sort of carefree life where they just do what they want and they're, they're away somewhere different every weekend and, and here I am and I have to get back for church and it's a bit of a bind, we think. And of course, it's, it's crazy talk, isn't it? It's crazy talk to think like that. It's forgetting what we've been saved from and what we've been saved for. But it's what our, our hearts are like for them then for us now discontent verses 16 to 18 then jealousy we read they were envious verse 16 of Moses and of Aaron and their access to God do you know next week we'll have both Moses and Aaron on the staff team it's quite exciting isn't it but um look forward to more jokes like that but how easily are we motivated by jealousy in our dealings with each other? You know, I, I hate how successful she is. It's not fair. It's not right. Doesn't, it, 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 he doesn't deserve that, that promotion he's got. What's he got that I haven't got? And all that kind of thing that goes on. We are like them. Verses 19 to 23. Idolatry. So verse 19, look, at Horeb, they made a calf. Horeb is Sinai. They made a calf and they worshipped an idol cast from metal. They exchanged their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass. 
This is the time you know, Moses is up the mountain, talking to God, and, and down the bottom, the people kind of get bored waiting. And they make idols. And, 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 and this kind of description of, in the image of a bull, which eats grass, it, it is meant to be funny. It is funny. It's, it's crazy. You know, the idea of worshipping a man-made idol, first of all, in the image of an animal, which itself is totally reliant on grass, to survive, it's crazy. How, how mad to forget the God who saved them. That's what he says, verse 21. They forgot the God who saved them. And yet, that was their sin. Well, it's ours too, isn't it? You know, it's a very slightly more sophisticated version of the same thing. When we worship and we live for whatever it is. Career, success, academic, glory. We worship money we worship pleasure we we worship comfort we worship whatever that thing is where we think you know yeah what if i had that that thing which my heart is sort of longing for and makes me think everything in my life would be okay if i had that thing that thing is what the bible calls an idol or if it's not the thing that we are desperately longing for, then it's the thing that we think we can't live without, that we do actually have, but we think if I lost that, life would be over. What is that for each of us? It will be different for each of us when we think about it. But those things, the Bible says, no, no, those are idols because they're like the image of a bull that eats grass and we're meant to realise how crazy it is. You know, you, know, you, know you, you worship your career, do you? Really? Really? You know, one day you're going to retire. You, you, you know that? And then you're going to stop having that career. And, and everyone will forget that you ever had that job. And then, and then actually, one day you'll die. You know, what, what's the point of that then? You know, you, oh, you worship sort of pleasure and comfort and just having a comfortable life here and now. Well, that's lovely, isn't it? But, you know, by the way, we're heading into some kind of global recession and soon it's going to cost more to fill up your car than to buy a new one. And, you know, suffering comes to everyone anyway at some, at some point. You see, how crazy. That's the point. It's like worshipping an image of a bull that eats grass. When you've got the true God. Well, from idolatry we move to more grumbling, 24 to 27. Grumbling, failing to remember what God has given us. You know, what do we do, you see? We focus always, don't we, on the thing that we don't have rather than all that we do have. So easy. But it is grumbling and it's missing the point. Look at what we have in Christ. Look at what God has provided for us. Be grateful, be thankful. From grumbling then in, uh, in verses 28 to, to 33, we move to yet more idolatry. And then finally, what one writer calls paganization. 28 to 39, particularly verse 34 onwards. Simply becoming like the nations around them. Verse 35, mingling, adopting their customs, worshipping their idols, and so on. You see, what's the point there? You see, God's people are meant to be distinctive. They're meant to be different, not just blend in and be unrecognisable. But again, so often, that is what we prefer, isn't it? 
into what we yearn for. And then actually we end up with there being no discernible difference between us and our lovely atheist North London next door neighbour, except for sort of 90 minutes on a Sunday. See, that is what they were like. They blended in, took on the customs of the nations around them. But the psalmist is saying, they're like that. I know I'm like that, he says in my heart. And so are we too now, if we are honest. You see? This kind of catalogue of all the ways that we have sinned like our ancestors did. And it explains to us what is wrong with the world, what is wrong with our hearts. This is why politicians fail and don't turn out to be what they promise to be. It's why church leaders fail, why relationships fail why wars start. The problem is in the human heart. And as we look back over history, it's the old truism that the only thing we learn from history is that we do not learn from history. And yet despite all that, actually this is a psalm of good news. Not bad news, because this is a psalm that began in verse 1 with love that endures forever, that doesn't give up. This is a psalm of love that knows this is exactly what we're like and then still loves us anyway. And we see that particularly in the saviours that Israel had and how that points us to the saviour that we have. And so secondly, finally, we have the saviour they were waiting for. We've sinned like they did, but we have the saviour they were waiting for. The question as we read this psalm is, well, how can God be true to himself and his promises in the face of such widespread sin and rebellion of so many different kinds against him that we've been hearing about? There's a reason that human love struggles to love like this. It is really hard. And it deems, at, at, at times we would say, well, it, it, it's not right to let really serious sin and wrongdoing go. You can't just say it doesn't matter. You can't just be swept under the carpet. You can't just say, let's forget about it. But the fact is, God says exactly the same thing. See, he's not being a doormat when he says that his love endures for his people who very definitely don't deserve it. He takes sin incredibly seriously. He is holy. He wants the world to be a place without sin. He's not a pushover. And so what does he do? He provides in his love... He provides a solution for sinners. He provides a saviour. And in the psalm, we hear of two. We hear of Moses, verse 23, his chosen one. You see, God is going to destroy his people. That's what they deserve for worshipping idols instead of him. And he's holy and he can't tolerate sin. But these are the people that he loves. And he's chosen a saviour for them. And so he stands in the breach between them and God. He stands between them. And the same happens later, verse 29, with Phineas. This is in Numbers chapter 25, if you want to go and read about it another time. Phineas's act of righteousness turns away God's wrath from his people. So do you see, Moses and Phineas are saviour figures, but they're limited in what they can achieve. Their salvation is only partial. In both cases, some of God's people die, 
actually, even though they're kind of doing the saviour role, still some die, but not all of them, which is what they deserve. In both cases, it's only temporary. You see, Moses and Phinehas themselves are only human, and they are sinners too, and one day they die, and Israel needs a different saviour and a different solution. And we see that, you know, these are fallible saviors. We see that as we hear about Moses himself speaking rash words to God. And of course, Moses ends up dying outside the land that he led God's people to. He is a sinner. So do you see, they have saviors they can look back on and the psalmist can rejoice in. But there's always that sense of, you know, well, God has sort of given us a saviour each time to meet that situation is he going to do it again? Is he going to keep on doing that? You know, they have saviors in that kind of way that we're starting to see now with the amazing treatments that can be given for illnesses like cancer, where you can be living with cancer for many, many years because new treatment keeps on being rolled out. You know, and there are people living for years and years and years and years. And each time that, that, that it comes back, there's a new drug just to keep it at bay. I know that is reality for, for some people even here. But there's that sense of looking forwards and knowing that life lived in that way is, is wondering what will happen next. What, when will the next treatment come? What will the doctors be able to come up with after this one? The cure is always partial and never total. It's always temporary and never permanent. And that is how it is with God's people here, do you see? Never completely sure and secure in their saviours, but trusting. But what about us? Well, you see, we do have a saviour. We have Jesus, who God has sent to stand in the breach between us and him, whose death on the cross was a death in our place. You know, we, we deserve to die because of that catalogue of things that we saw before. Our unbelief, our discontent and thanklessness, our jealousy, our idolatry, our paganisation and so on. But on the cross, you see, Jesus took the consequences that we deserve for that on himself, on his own shoulders, once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. And unlike Moses and Phinehas, he's not part of the problem. He has no sin of his, of his own to pay for. And so unlike Moses and Phinehas, his salvation is complete, total, not partial. It is eternal, not temporary. It is like that miracle cure that everybody longs for, but it's even better than that. Because it's for free, it's forever, and it gets us through death itself. The one thing there is never any medicine for in the end. So even though when the, the, the psalm ends, the psalmist is still waiting for the rescue he believes is coming, you know, verse 47, save us, you know, we're, we're still waiting. We're in the midst of this. He can say, verse 48, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. 
let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. Because this is the kind of God God is. And if he could see that from his vantage point before Jesus had come, how much more can we see that now today? So isn't he good? That's what we need to see today. Look at his love. It endures forever. We know that because of Jesus Christ. So praise him and tell the world about him. Praise him and find the resources to live out the same kind of love in our relationships and our lives. You know, when we're struggling, we've thought about how difficult it is to love the unlovely. That is what God has done for us. He has loved the unlovely. And so in him, we have the resources to say, you know, yeah, I don't, you don't deserve to be forgiven, but I can forgive you because I have been forgiven for something that I did, for all the things I've done. I have been forgiven and therefore I can forgive you too. Praise him. Praise him and tell the world about him. What we celebrate shows what we value. Look how great a saviour we have. Look how great God's love is. Celebrate him. Praise him. Let's pray now. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. We have sinned, even as our ancestors did. We have done wrong and acted wickedly. But Father, we praise you that you have saved us. You have sent a saviour. Jesus Christ, who's died and risen from the dead. So we can be totally confident in your love when we put our trust in him. We can know once and for all that your love, even for sinners like us, even when we get into the real depths of the ways that we've turned our backs on you and one another, the mess of this world, we can know your love is a love that is everlasting, that endures forever. We praise you. We praise you. In Jesus' name. Amen.